everybody in America wants to be rich. That's part of our freedom. But does being a billionaire cross the line and start to threaten freedom and our republic itself? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message. A lot of Americans wince at the word socialism. What people find objectionable is the prospect of one set of people benefiting from government's special treatment and everyone else paying for it. Our capitalist economic system is supposed to be a level playing field and government and laws are there to make sure there is fairness, that no economic class of citizens gets a free ride while others support them. Well, today's Republicans have no question they are anti-socialist and are for a free and fair market. The opposite is true. As Gore Vidal said nearly a half century ago, in America we have socialism for the very richest and rugged individualism for the rest of us. The irony of the anti-socialist right actually being enablers for socialism for the richest is not just mind-numbing, but it is doing immense, easily preventable harm to America's economic strength, our freedom, and our security. A new report shows that taxes on the ultra-rich are as low as they've ever been. It doesn't have to stay this way. We can take measures to change the laws so that actual capitalism with a more level playing field can once again result in a strong and wide middle class. And speaking of irony, a successful precedent for making the ultra-wealthy pay their fair share of taxes is to look to a Republican president. The top earners in the eight years of Eisenhower's presidency, 1953 through 61, paid a top marginal income tax rate of 91%. Yes, you heard that right, 91%. And no, that was not confiscatory, not at all. That rate only affected that portion of income over and above a certain amount. And what I remember about that period was that there was a huge and solid middle class. The American economy was robust. Today's wealth divide is more extreme than the infamous Gilded Age. Now, of course, nearly all Americans would like to be rich, and there's nothing wrong with that. But should there be a ceiling to keep it within reason? Our guest today, Josh Mound, argues in a new article on History News Network titled, the U.S. tax code should not allow billionaires to exist. Josh Mound is a, has a Ph.D. in history and sociology from the University of Michigan. His writing has appeared in the New Republic, Jacobin, the Journal of Policy History, and he's taught courses on modern U.S. history at Michigan, Miami of Ohio, and University of Virginia. Josh Mound, thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you for having me. Well, Bernie Sanders has talked about billionaires he's appealed to he's appealed to populists of the left and right on the coasts and in the heartland which middle of the road corporate democrats never seem to connect with he connected he talks disparagingly of billionaires not paying their fair share of taxes that's not new but what is new is a report came out in June 2021, which brought new nationwide focus and attention to the issue. What, what, is, the, what is the highly credible ProPublica? And tell us, please, what it is they exposed. 
Um, ProPublica is a reporting nonprofit, and um, you know their report really kind of builds on decades and decades of reporting on tax loopholes that benefit the rich. Um, and in particular, a lot of recent work um, by some economists out of Berkeley that look at how top tax rates for the top 1% and you know fractions of the top 1% have fallen really dramatically um, since the 1980s in particular. And what ProPublica was looking at specifically was how billionaires can accumulate you know, oodles and oodles of wealth and not pay taxes on that wealth because, of course, you know, we don't have any widespread wealth tax in the United States. Really, the only kind of wealth tax we have is the local property tax. And most of billionaires' wealth is not in homes and in property. Um, it's in things like stocks. And billionaires can borrow against all of their stock accumulations and live off of those um, loans that they get from banks, and then they can pass on all of those stocks to their heirs when they die um, and have most of it escape capital gains taxation. So the ProPublica piece was really looking at, you know, what happens when we have a tax code that doesn't really recognize most types of wealth, and you have this explosion of wealth inequality, and the outcome is, you know, really uh, light, tax, light tax rates on the richest 1% and fractions of the 1%. And it works great for them, I suppose. And and as you write, ProPublica's president called the tax investigation, quote, the most important story in the outlet's history. And they do have a significant history, very highly respected. Part of the problem with the 24-hour news cycle is that important stories make a splash and then are quickly forgotten. What's your sense of this one? Will this story fade away like so many other big ones? Um, well, you know, as a historian, I'm kind of, you know, leery of, of making predictions about the future. Um, you know, I would like to see this one stick around and make an impact. And, and there certainly are some Democrats who said that it needs to prompt an investigation um, by Congress into some of these tax loopholes and into the explosion of income and wealth inequality that's really undergirding all this. But the question is always, you know, will um, kind of a handful of, as you said, you know, corporate friendly Democrats go along with any potential solution, uh, which would have to involve taxing wealth in, in one way or another, either through wealth tax, through um, increasing rates on capital gains or some other method. And, you know, it's always hard to predict that they're going to go along with anything which would, you know, impede the fortunes of the ultra-rich. Yeah, and there's no question that uh, today's Republicans are very different from how they used to be. These are not our father's two political parties. The Republican Party of today and the Democratic Party of today have uh, been led by the nose by going after money. They need a tremendous amount of money to run for election and then re-election. So they are not as excited about limiting the wealth of the people that give them the money. And talk about gifts. The Democratic Party is given so many gifts by different issues that come up, yet has a pretty predictable record of failing to pick up those political campaign gifts. Please, if you could, talk about the recurring presence of this sort over the past few decades that Democrats have let slip away, you know, things that they could use against the Republicans, and your thoughts on whether this time may be different. 
Well, polling has pretty consistently showed um, since the 1960s, really, that uh, the public wants more progressive taxation. Um, really, starting in the 70s, um, polls started asking whether you think that the tax code is written to help the rich or written to help average people. And overwhelmingly, uh, the public has said that they think the tax code is written to help the rich. So, you know, when you have these exposés about tax loopholes that benefit the wealthy come up again and again, and there have been this long history of these exposés um, in the 60s, there were, you know, best-selling books and different um, articles about all these loopholes that the rich used to benefit them. And they kind of continued throughout the 70s and 80s, 90s, and into the 2000s. Um, some of your listeners might know David K. Johnson. He won a Pulitzer Prize in the early 2000s for his reporting on tax loopholes. And so, you know, ProPublica is just kind of building on this whole history of reports about tax loopholes that benefit the rich. And, you know, as a historian of taxation, what I've seen is that, you know, most of the time these exposés don't actually end up producing any results, um, even though, as you said, they really should be a political gift for Democrats because they're basically, you know, a highly salient issue in the news that's showing that, you know, average people, in many cases, middle class people are paying higher effective tax rates than the very rich. And the question is always, you know, will Democrats use this political gift to, you know, as a cudgel to attack Republicans, distract from whatever, you know, culture war issue that Republicans are putting out there? Obviously, you know, we have stuff about critical race theory and things mm -hmm. like that, that, you know, Republicans are trying to use. And the ProPublica report is really a perfect example for Democrats to you know, reframe the public debate around an issue that's going to be, you know, a Democratic advantage um, is going to put Republicans on their back foot. But, you know, the question is, as, as we were talking about, will, will Democrats actually do this? Um, will they get enough members who are sort of corporate friendly in their party to go along with it? Or will it be another missed opportunity? Well, the never the Democrats never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity, and I say that as a Democrat myself. And uh, it it it's interesting to me how, as you say, for a long time, people have understood. Yeah, the tax code benefits the rich, and somehow people buy into it. Seems the uh, trickle down theory of economics, which has never worked, ever ever worked. But people think somehow they react. Well, you know, if I want to be rich myself someday, I don't want to pay more taxes if I'm rich. And these people, we need them. They're the job creators, as the Republicans, Trump Republicans have said. And people identify with that. So why? It seems like Bernie got it. Bernie got it. It was very, very strong. And in 2016, uh, you know, the party did not allow him to be the nominee. I think he would have won rather easily because he connected with people who felt left out. People feel ignored by both parties, unfortunately. And and there's this and they connected with the faux populism of Trump that he was going to pay attention to them and, you know, just fight for them. Didn't really say anything about that, but people sort of projected that on him. And it just Again, this is a gift that if, if Democrats, if candidates would talk about this, but they're so afraid to talk about it. But I think if they talked about it, especially with this ProPublica report, with all their credibility, 
I would think this would be uh, something that could help them in the 2022 elections. And, you know, Bernie is, is still at it. I, I wonder, do you see other members of Congress, probably no other senators, uh, latching onto this and seeing how, yeah, this is something that can connect with people with real populism? Um, Elizabeth Warren and some other Senate Democrats, uh, you know, along with Sanders, you know, have said that they want to investigate um, billionaire taxation based on the ProPublica report. And certainly, you know, Joe Biden has picked up more than Obama did on the issue of taxation of the very rich. Well, I don't think, you know, his proposals go far enough. Um, they're certainly light years ahead of what Obama was talking about in terms of raising taxes on the rich and specifically trying to address the issue of capital gains taxation, um, which, you know, disproportionately accrues to the very, very rich. Not many average people have any capital gains. And the question really is, you know, are they going to follow through with it? Um, can the members who genuinely want to follow through with it, like, you know, the Bernie Sanders or the Elizabeth Warrens, um, actually get, you know, their more reticent, more so-called moderate hmm. colleagues to go along with them? Um, and I think, you know, that's an open question, and I, I wish I had the answer to it. I certainly hope that they can. Um, and I think that ProPublica's reports um, certainly, you know, aid in that by putting the issue of low taxes on the ultra-rich, you know, back in the public debate. Well, we will see, won't we? They, you know, it's so much easier to focus on the the culture war issues, the uh, critical race theory, which is it's just teaching history, is what it is, really. But 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 the culture issues seem to connect with people very well. And we mentioned earlier the uh, the Gilded Age, that was followed by a progressive era, and I know in terms of worker safety thanks to books like The Jungle, uh, the government did seem to step in and care about the well-being of working people. I don't know what, if anything, they did to change tax laws after that. Perhaps you do. Well, the modern uh, income tax was instituted during that period. So, you know, really when we think about federal taxation and kind of the modern tax system, it all dates to that progressive era. Um, but those taxes from the progressive era when the income tax was first instituted really, you know, were only applied to the very, very rich. Um, and we didn't have kind of a broad based income tax at that point. And then in the 1920s, uh, under Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon, uh, the quip is always that three Republican presidents served under him, not the other way around. Um, he was kind of the inventor of trickle-down economics. Uh, so the Roaring Twenties, um, that idea, you know, Mellon's idea was we're going to cut taxes on the very rich. This is going to, you know, stimulate the economy. And, um, you know, it certainly helped with kind of the stock bubble of the 1920s and setting up the uh, massive inequality in the run-up to the stock market crash and the Great Depression. Um, and so, you know, you had that brief period where, the income tax is instituted almost immediately. It's cut dramatically. And then kind of the rebuilding of the income tax and then the modernization of the income tax and really our entire uh -huh. tax system came under FDR in the 1930s and 40s. Yeah, and some people still insist that the income tax is not uh, constitutional. It's, it's not uh, legitimate. And you mentioned Mellon. What was his role there? I knew he was a rich guy, but what was, was he Secretary of Treasury or something? 
Yeah, he was he was Secretary of the Treasury for for many years. Oh my uh, goodness! Three different Republican presidents. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we're talking here on Keeping Democracy Alive. I'm Bert Cohen. My guest today is Josh Mound, who has written. A, an article on the History News Network titled The U.S. Tax Code Should Not Allow Billionaires to Exist. And, of course, I tend to agree. Your article refers to something I'd not heard of, the Pecora hearings or Pecora hearings. I'm not sure. Their focus was J.P. Morgan, right up there with Mellon, uh, one of the Depression era's wealthiest men. What was the Pecora hearings? Um, the Pecora hearings actually were started um, before FDR even entered office, um, and they were basically designed to look at the cause of the stock market crash. Um, and the, the hearings sort of had a, a faltering start, different lead investigators kind of turned over, and eventually uh, this lawyer, Pecora, was appointed. And really, he was looking at things like you know stock market manipulation. How did banks get together to prop up? prices and then sell and make a huge profit, um, as well as, you know, some other kind of risky or unethical behavior that took place in the 1920s. Um, kind of a side effect of this, though, was the issue of taxation coming up. Um, when Pecora started to get into J.P. Morgan Jr.'s finances, um, Morgan kind of, you know, uh, just admitted that he was paying, you know, very, very low uh, taxes on his huge fortune. And, you know, he also had the image of being someone who, you know, had inherited kind of his economic position from his father, um, which obviously kind of, you know, went against the, you know, individualism of the United States and how, you know, sometimes, as you said at the beginning, you know, people want to be rich and we do have a, uh, a history of kind of lionizing rich individuals. But, People tend to kind of look look a little bit askance right at someone who didn't really earn their fortune. Um, so Morgan kind of had, you know, the good fortune to inherit a bunch of money, but politically the bad fortune to admit that he inherited a bunch of money and wasn't paying taxes on it. And in the context of the hearings, he also talked about how, you know, in the UK, he would be paying much, much higher taxes on his huge fortune than he was paying in the US. So a lot of kind of unforced errors by J.P. Morgan Jr., you know, just kind of fell in the lap um, of Pecora, um, admitting how he, you know, was making this huge fortune, not paying much in taxes. And kind of behind the scenes, FDR was cheering on Pecora's discussion of J.P. Morgan's taxes because, you know, it really helped set up um, FDR's push to modernize the U.S. tax system and raise taxes on the rich. So people got it. People understood it. It was it was people, as I say, they got it because uh, nowadays, I don't know, there's so many different things happening all at once, just coming at them, you know, like a fire hose of, of different information. That wasn't the case back then, but it it did help uh, to make FDR uh, push toward uh, tax fairness. Of course, he was pushed toward fact, tax fairness by populist Huey Long, Rosa, who was considering running for president, and I think uh, FDR could feel Huey Long breathing down his neck as a populist and talking about these issues of uh, incredible unfairness. Roosevelt, after that, pushed for the Revenue Act of 1935. As you point out, the president cast the legislation in populist terms. Huey Long helped raise that quite a bit. What did he say, which is a as applicable now as it was then? 
Well, so you have to think about the huge inequality that, you know, preceded the Great Depression and, you know, obviously the huge run up in inequality that also preceded the Great Recession and that we're still dealing with today. And um, that kind of double edged sword of rugged individualism, which can sometimes, you know, help rich people by, you know, making making them seem like heroic figures can also, I think, cut against them when someone like FDR frames wealth as something that can tilt the playing field unfairly and can be inherited and can skew politics and can essentially, you know, go against giving everyone a fair shake um, in the economic system. So FDR really zeroed in on this idea of inherited wealth and inherited power and essentially argued, right, that, you know, rich people are benefiting from the country they live in and the infrastructure that we all share, both in terms of things like public education, but publicly built roads, um, our legal system, all of that. So, you know, FDR made an argument that kind of was the, you know, precursor to um, some of Elizabeth Warren's arguments when she ran for Senate and that Obama then kind of awkwardly paraphrased with the you didn't build that quip that became, you know, such like a flashpoint in 2012. Um, Really, FDR kind of laid that out really cogently, um, really simply and said, you know, hey, we can't let people like J.P. Morgan and his son, J.P. Morgan Jr. just accrue these massive fortunes, pass them down from generation to generation. That's not good for democracy. That's not good for economic fairness. And so, you know, we need to raise taxes on the rich, essentially for the specific purpose of leveling the playing field in the economy and in politics. So, you know, he really did a great job kind of tying together these ideas of fairness and the idea of, you know, the economic playing field and also just, you know, democracy being at stake if we let um, fortunes, you know, accrue and pass down from generation to generation for years and years and years. Yeah, we <laughs> at least like to think of ourselves as, as a country that's not ruled by an aristocracy. They don't officially own the government. It's supposed to be about we the people, but I suppose that's so quaint and so old-fashioned. But it, it seemed to have worked then. And the Revenue Act of 1935, did it have some beneficial effects? Oh, absolutely. Um, and it was really something that it, it wasn't just the act itself. Um, it was how it set up a whole new way of thinking about, about taxation and a whole new pattern of you know what taxation meant and the uh, instituting the idea of ability to pay, um, meaning that, you know, higher income people should pay a higher percentage of their income and in taxes as being, you know, the most important value in American taxation. So the Revenue Act of 1935 itself actually, you know, raised taxes on the rich in several different ra- ways um, pretty substantially. It was, you know, called by its opponents, the soak the rich <laughs> bill, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it also set up um, the expectation that, you know, when the government needed to raise taxes in World War II, um, it was going to raise taxes on the rich, you know, first before it raised taxes on average Americans. And this kind of continued, as you said, you know, into the post-war years where under Eisenhower, Republican president, you know, you have top tax rates on the rich, you know, in, in the, you know, 80, 90 percent range um, that seems, you know, completely unfathomable today. 
Yes, what people, I think what, what freaks people out when they hear that number, 80, 90%, I think that's on the whole Megillah. <laughs> but it's just, it was at the time, I believe, just on that portion of income over and above a certain rather high amount. And it, it seems to me, you know, if, if somebody's making, say, a million dollars a year, which to me is a heck of a lot of money, then anything on top of that, you know, uh, maybe tax a little bit higher. And the concept and reality of progressive taxation was widely accepted in the 1950s. So what, what did that taxation look like for, under Eisenhower for the ultra-rich and for working America's working and middle class? Um, well, so as I said, you know, taxes under Eisenhower for the very rich were up to 90%. And the, the key thing, as you mentioned, is that you know, this only applied to really um, a small number of taxpayers. Uh, so you had really heavily graduated rates, um, which we don't have today. Right. That's that's kind of a big problem. A, a quip that, you know, some tax people make is that LeBron James and LeBron James Dennis pay the same top tax rate, um, meaning, right, that we don't disaggregate and separate the tax rates for the the merely rich, you know, someone who's like a highly successful doctor and the ultra rich, someone who is a celebrity or certainly someone who is, you know, a billionaire like, you know, Jeff Bezos, people like that. Um, and so what's interesting when we think about those tax rates in the 30s, 40s and 50s is that it, it's not just that rates were high, it's that they really separated, you know, the mere rich from the very rich. And so those top tax rates were only applying to a handful of people. Um, and that was kind of key towards how they were curbing, you know, the, the ultra concentration of wealth and income in the 1%. Um, and as you said, people often misunderstand what um, marginal tax rates mean. Right, right. So I think, I think in the 2012 election, there was this, I can't remember what publication put it out an article where it was kind of clear that the the person writing the article and all of these people who were making around $250,000, which if you remember was the cutoff for Obama's repealing um, the Bush era tax cuts, didn't understand that, you know, when you go from $250,000 to $250,001, it doesn't mean all of those dollars get kicked into the top tax bracket. It's only that extra dollar. Right. So really, you know, th there's, there's no way that you can make more money and end up losing money because of taxes. The whole idea of progressive taxes is that, you know, it's only the, that, that final dollar or the dollars that go above that next bracket that get taxed at that rate. Everything else below that gets taxed at the lower rate. So, you know, Jeff Bezos, whatever rich person, they are paying some of their income at the very lowest rates that, you know, the very poorest people pay at because it's kind of, you know, an additive cumulative thing. And so the other important element of that is that we often talk about um, marginal tax rates. When we say 90% under Eisenhower, um, right. that's only something that, you know, the very, very rich were paying on kind of the, the, the very top, you know, final dollars of their income, but their average, their effective tax rates, which is kind of what most people care about, you know, when you yeah. add up all your income, and you add up all your taxes, what fraction of your income was paid in taxes, that's your effective tax rate. And that's always much lower than your highest marginal tax rate. So, you know, even in the era where um, the very richest people were paying, you know, a 90% top um, marginal tax rate, they might have only been paying like an effective rate of, you know, 60% or something like that. 
um, if they were in, you know, the top top one tenth or one one hundredth of one percent. Mm hmm. Yeah, that that needs to be communicated better. But, you know, Democrats, not always the best communicators, shall we say. Uh, For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about really a threat to democracy, people having... uh, being billionaires. And our guest today, Josh Mound, has written the U.S., tax code should not allow billionaires to exist. And let me just remind people, I mean, we hear the word billionaire, but a a billion is a thousand million. I can't even think about that, quite frankly. And then Bezos has like 200 billion. It's just, people don't understand, you can't understand that. Who can understand that? Anyway, back to a little bit of tax history. Kennedy and Johnson enjoyed democratic majorities and widespread public support. They had an opportunity to address tax fairness. What did they do? What about any effects of their policies? Um, so something that you you often hear, um, and that probably some of your listeners have, have you know run into, even in kind of I think the Republican primary back in 2016, um, is that Republicans who are kind of in favor of supply side or trickle down tax cuts will cite John F. Kennedy. And um, Ronald Reagan famously, in arguing for his 1981 tax cut, cited John F. Kennedy. And a lot of times you will see kind of Democrats and liberal pundits get upset about this. Um, but I would argue that, you know, this is this is an instance where probably Republicans are being a little bit more truthful in terms of the spirit of what Kennedy did um, than the people who are objecting to it. Because Kennedy gets into office and he institutes really, you know, the first big across the board tax cut um, since Mellon that we talked about in the 1920s. So, you know, he dramatically slashes taxes, um, particularly for the rich. So we see taxes go down in terms of the top rate um, from 90 percent to 60 percent. And the majority of the benefits of the Kennedy tax cut um, which ended up being enacted by Johnson, obviously, after Kennedy was assassinated, ended up um, benefiting the rich. And this was doubly the case when you consider that it, the only thing going on in taxes wasn't just the federal tax cuts. Um, you also had payroll taxes, um, which in particular today are something that disproportionately affects lower and middle income people, right? Sure. Because yeah. once you once you make enough income, you know, I think it's around $200,000 now, you stop paying payroll taxes, um, so for someone like Jeff Bezos, right, the payroll tax might be, you know, one one hundredth of one percent or something of their total income. But for average Americans, you know, it's going to be on the order, you know, of 10 or 15 percent of their total income. Um, so payroll taxes were going up a lot in the 1960s and state and local taxes, um, which are also regressive, meaning yes. that the lower your income the more uh, you pay. We're also going up in the 1960s. Um, When we think of, you know, schools modernizing, lots of kind of, you know, local and state public infrastructure modernizing, Mm -hmm. that really took place, you know, in the 50s, 60s, into the 70s. And that was all paid for by states and localities. um, And they had to raise taxes quite a bit to do that. So if you look at kind of the, the totality of taxation over the 1960s, Um, The combination of the Kennedy tax cuts to federal income taxes and the increases in payroll taxes and state and local taxes, lower and middle income people were paying more in taxes at the end of the decade than the beginning 
and it was the opposite for the rich. Oh, my goodness. So much for uh, liberal economic policies. Not really. It's sort of like uh, downshifting the tax burden to people at the lower level. Well, that's, uh, it's good to know history. Oftentimes, it's very disturbing. If you're, don't, if you're not disturbed by history, you're not familiar with history, that's for sure. You write, ultimately, the country's closest brush with meaningful tax reform came not as a result of journalistic investigations, but from revelations made by President Johnson's outgoing Treasury Secretary Joseph Barr, end of quote. And as with the ProPublica report, Barr's testimony also made a big splash. The result was the Tax Reform Act of 1969, what kind of reform did that deliver? More of the same as you were just describing, or a little bit better? Um, uh, you know, it closed some loopholes, but um, most experts at the time kind of, you know, viewed it as a big disappointment. Um, you know, in other words, it it closed some, it opened others. Um, the end result was maybe a slight bump in taxes for the very rich in certain circumstances, but it, it really didn't address a lot. Um, and you kind of had these countervailing factors of, as you said, Barr giving testimony as Johnson's leaving office, you know, in, in a hearing that really had nothing to do with taxes, kind of like the PCORA hearings, um, drops this bombshell about all of these millionaires who are paying nothing in taxes. And so that kind of creates pressure on um, Democrats in Congress and on, you know, the incoming Nixon administration to do something about it. But not only did you have a lot of Nixon's more conservative economic advisors who really didn't want to do anything about it, um, you also had conservative Democrats in key positions. Yes. Um, you had Russell, Russell Long, who wasn't very similar to his father, Huey Long, in terms of his economic philosophy. Um, he was a very conservative um, Democrat who was head of the Senate Finance Committee, which is obviously key in oh. making tax policy. Um, and Wilbur Mills, who was also no. a Southern Democrat, um, was the head of the Ways and Means Committee. And, you know, neither of them, but in particular Long, um, were anxious about doing anything that would increase taxes on the very rich. So, you know, I, you had this this huge buildup and then really the result um, was was pretty disappointing in terms of the legislation that was actually passed. Uh, we've heard this story before. Now, again, moving up through history a little bit, President Nixon had an income of over a quarter million dollars, yet paid just a few hundred dollars in federal income tax. He was hardly the first or the last hero to the hordes of people who look up to people smart enough to avoid their share of taxes. It's amazing to me how people like it when the super rich don't pay their taxes. And I, it reminded me, I discovered in reading about the Europe-wide revolutions of 1848, that the most steadfast supporters of royal and aristocratic wealth were the peasant class. They stuck up for the super-rich more than other parts of the economy. It did surprise me, though, it seems people who are most negative effects of today's tax structure are also some of the biggest boosters of super-rich people. Is that starting to change at all? Do you understand that? And does polling reflect any changes on that? Uh, I think there are kind of a few interesting things to kind of disentangle thinking about that. Is um, One, you know, if you look at opinions on taxes just by income, um, people are, are a little more rational than you might imagine. You know, <laughs> in most cases, right, um, 
rich people are most opposed to a progressive form of taxation in polls. People tend to kind of have an understanding of what taxes affect them and, you know, render their opinions to pollsters, you know, along those lines. And I think what it ends up coming down to, obviously, is that effect of, you know, people don't always just purely vote on economic self-interest. Um, as we talked about, you know, there are lots of cultural issues and other things that are um, kind of countervailing factors. The other thing is people don't quite understand, you know, the, the degree of inequality, as you mentioned, you know, it's hard to wrap your head around how, how much money a billion dollars is. Um, there have been some good research done asking people to estimate the degree of inequality in the U.S. as well as to say, you know, what level of inequality you think they think is acceptable. Um, and they just vastly underestimate the amount of inequality we have in the U.S. And the degree of inequality that they say is acceptable is more along the lines of what Scandinavian countries have. Um, similarly, right, there's ignorance about how the tax code actually works. Um, a classic example of this is capital gains taxes. Um, capital gains taxes, you know, for your listeners who might not know, because, right, it, it hardly affects any normal people are taxes that you pay on investment income. So, you know, if you buy a stock and you hold it for, you know, however many years and sell it at a big profit, you're not paying regular income taxes right. on that. You're paying capital gains taxes. Right. Um, most people don't have any capital gains because, right, if you're an average person and you have an investment, it's probably your home, um, which you don't pay capital gains taxes on, or it's probably in a 401k or an IRA or something like that. And that's a whole separate tax system and you don't pay um, capital gains taxes on that. So, you know, people don't have a lot of knowledge about capital gains taxes and don't really know that it only applies to rich people. And if you just ask them, say, you know, do you think capital gains taxes should be higher or lower mm. in polls? People kind of don't know what to say because they don't know a lot about it. But if you explain right now in the U.S., a million dollars earned from wages gets taxed at a higher rate than a million dollars earned from investments. People say that's totally wrong, right? If anything, it should be the opposite where labor income should be taxed at a lower rate than investment income. Um, so really, you know, when you have to look at polls and see what do people know, how's the question phrase, is it really representing what's going on? And in a lot of cases, I think the thing working against um, under, you know, populist understandings of taxes are just that people don't have a lot of experience or knowledge about, you know, inequality and the tax world of the ultra rich. And that's why, you know, as, as we're talking about, when some something like the ProPublica report comes along, um, it's really a golden opportunity to, you know, educate people and use that education um, to the advantage of people who want um, progressive tax reform. Interesting point. I, I, I was given advice years ago about uh, running for political office. When you're explaining, you're losing. It's hard to explain things. People thought, you know, especially now where things are moving so fast with all that Internet stuff and all that. But moving ahead to Jimmy Carter in 76 ran on a platform of progressive loophole closing tax reform. And then it, your article goes on to say that Reagan's famed 1981 tax cuts simply finished the funneling of money to the rich that Carter began three years earlier. Tell us about that, please. Yes, yeah, so as you said, Carter, you know, ran kind of as, you know, this sort of like prairie populist. Um, and he had the scandals of, you know, Nixon 
and Reagan um, in the early 70s, it came out, you know, that Nixon paid next to nothing in taxes on his president in presidential income. It came out that Ronald Reagan, who was governor of California at the time, was paying next to nothing in taxes. Um, Nixon's first vice president, Spiro Agnew, had his own tax scandal. There was all kinds of stuff in the early 70s ar around Watergate um, that kind of set up, you know, Jimmy Carter to make the case that we need progressive tax reform. And he did commercials that were just dedicated to taxes and just dedicated to saying that, you know, we need to increase taxes on investment income in particular. Um, and there was resistance within his own administration. There was resistance from some Democrats in Congress to doing this. Um, and what happens is there is what's known as the um, tax revolt of 1978 in California, which was Proposition 13 um, that cut taxes oh. on um, the cut property taxes. And, you know, as we said, property taxes aren't aren't really a great uh, analogy for kind of all wealth. It's just, you know, primarily on homeowners. It's yes. a regressive form of taxation. Yes, it is. Um, but Republicans did an amazing job of taking Prop 13 and spinning it as an argument for cutting taxes across the board and cutting taxes on capital gains, even though capital gains are skewed in the completely opposite direction of property taxes. So Republicans actually rent a jet and dub it the tax clipper. And it has uh, Alan Greenspan and Ronald Reagan and, um, you know, uh, Jack Kemp and all kinds of people on it. And they sort of fly around the country holding these rallies saying, you know, Prop 13 kind of proves that the public is turned against liberal government. Mm. And, you know, we need to enact um, the Kemp Roth tax cut, which was a, a, a income tax cut that kind of became the Reagan tax cut in 1981 and enact this bill called the Steiger Bill, which was a capital gains tax cut. Um, and so the Steiger Bill actually ends up passing Congress in 1978. And it, you know, overwhelmingly benefited the very, very richest because it was a capital gains tax cut. Um, Carter kind of waffles back and forth on whether to pass it. Um, he's kind of personally opposed to it. If you look at kind of, you know, private letters and things like that in his presidential library, but he has members of his administration and Democrats in Congress, you know, are saying you should pass it because tons of Democrats in Congress went along to give it the majority it needed to pass. And in the end, he ends up signing it. And, you know, it's a, a huge tax cut for the ultra rich um, and really like starts the ball rolling for the Reagan tax cuts. You know, we already had a big tax cut for the rich, you know, in 1978, even before Reagan took office. Mm. And Reagan today is, is you know, it, I, I guess we'd be seen as sort of a liberal compared to Trump, but he's just bizarre out there. And in his his presidency, it can be argued that Reagan did more to transform America from being a republic serving all the people to a plutocracy serving the very richest. But maybe he wasn't uh, so much of a standout in that sense. He was, he did it very well. I mean, so many things he did that uh, that hurt working people and uh, changed America from being a, a republic to a, a plutocracy where the rich rule. And many of us remember the Tax Reform Act of 1986, the Graham Rudman Act. It appeared to at least a little bit to level the playing field. But what what did it do to the demise of progressivity as the guiding principle for the federal tax system? And in what ways did it become accepted? 
is the ideal tax reform for conservatives and centrist Democrats alike. So, you know, as we talked about, Reagan had already cut taxes um, on the rich really dramatically with his um, tax cut of 1981. There were kind of a couple small tax bills after that um, when people started freaking out about deficits that, you know, really didn't roll back many tax cuts for the rich and actually tended to increase taxes on lower income people. And there was still kind of this, you know, movement to close tax loopholes, to reform and simplify the tax code, because everything up until that point had been essentially, you know, all the tax bills were just revisions of the tax code that had been enacted in 1954. And so people thought, you know, it's time for kind of a complete rewrite of the tax code. You get the Tax Reform Act of 1986. And it had this odd structure that's kind of become, you know, this strange platonic ideal for a yeah. lot of moderates today that, sure, we're going to close tax loopholes that benefit the rich, but we're going to compensate them for closing those loopholes by lowering the statutory rates dramatically. So, you know, even after the Reagan tax cuts in 1981, um, the top tax rate on the rich was still 50 percent. Um and what the Tax Reform Act of 1986 did was lower that to 28%. So they got rid of, you know, the preferential rate for capital gains, um, essentially. Mm -hmm. But they didn't do that by raising the capital gains rate up to the 50% rate for labor income. They dropped the rate for labor income down to the rate um, for capital gains that was in existence after Carter's capital gains tax cut. So... You know, this idea was it's called broaden the base, meaning close loopholes, you know, mm -hmm. get more more types of income into the tax system, but lower the rates. And so whenever you hear people, you know, kind of moderate Democrats kind of talk about tax reform, it's always we've got to broaden the base and lower the rates. Um, but it really didn't affect income taxation for the very rich. You know, it, it kind of netted out to not much change in terms of their effective tax rates um, because, you know, you kind of close some loopholes, but you lowered the rates overall. So it really didn't do much to alter the income distribution in the United States. What a surprise. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is, uh, is uh, Josh Mound, who's written an article, The U.S. Tax Code Should Not Allow Billionaires to Exist. And right now we have a few billionaires, not that many. And sometimes it makes it into the news that they pay virtually no tax at all. And, you know, Jeff Bezos, for example, makes more every hour than most Americans earn in a lifetime. And of course, he found something clever to do recently. He, <clears throat> dare I say, pleasured himself rather publicly by launching himself into space for like 10 minutes. Some might see this as a tad irresponsible. His worth is over $200 billion. Um, and I, I can understand wanting to be rich, but this strikes me as just plain, I mean, who would want that kind of money? He pays a lower tax rate than his warehouse workers. Uh, the ProPublica report says that the current U.S. tax code lets the ultra-rich accrue almost unlimited wealth tax-free. And polling shows average people do care about this inequity. Uh, Biden has said that he wants an FDR-sized presidency. We have huge challenges now. The infrastructure really needs work. 
Biden has focused on that. There's also climate change, which could also uh, take a lot of money, like World War II. Uh, but when the Republicans fought against, you know, uh, doing away with the uh, Trump uh, tax cuts and they, they fight against uh, uh, any real uh, tax reform. Uh, and, and yet somehow there's got to be the money to do this. And these these ultra millionaires, ultra billionaires is uh, they, they wouldn't be affected by a fair tax. Now, what I mean, they could do this and it wouldn't hurt the economy at all. In fact, it would help it, I believe. Am I sounds like I'm I'm understanding this somewhat. And what what about the Ultra Millionaire Tax Act of 2021 is a proposed bill which would impose a tax on the wealth of the top 0.05% of Americans. A 40% exit tax on US any US resident with a net worth surpassing 50 million who renounces their citizenship to avoid paying their fair share of taxes. And this ultra millionaire tax act of 2021 mandates that any household or trust with any net worth between 50 million to 1 billion will be taxed 2% of their net worth annually. And any household or trust surpassing 1 billion will have a surtax of uh, 1%, so it's 3% in total. Senator Warren, who is one of the people backing this bill, expects the bill to raise $3 trillion in revenue over the next 10 years. What are the prospects for this, do you think? Um, I, you know, I want to be optimistic, right. but I'm, I'm not sure if I am, uh, you know, because obviously, you know, the ultra-rich flood so much money into the system um, that, you know, you only have to buy off essentially a few swing votes. Um, to prevent something like this from happening. And there's also kind of the, the history of, of not having um, a wealth tax besides, you know, the local property tax um, and a few states that kind of tax cars and things like that today um, in the U.S. And so the idea of a wealth tax um, kind of, you know, strikes people as going against some type of, you know, American tradition, mm -hmm. even though if you if you look at it as an analogy for the local property tax, it, it really doesn't. Um, but the ProPublica report really highlighted why it's a problem to think that way, because, um, as I said, you know, if if billionaires are able to accrue all this wealth and they're able to borrow against this wealth because, you know, banks know, obviously, you know, you have trillions of dollars in stock and other assets. And then the, mo the money they get from loans from banks borrowing against this wealth isn't taxable. And they can kind of live off those loans and then they can pass on all of their investments to their heirs. And due to something called the step up basis, which basically, mm. you know, if, if in your lifetime you were to, you know, buy a stock for, um, you know, a thousand dollars and it's um, it's a million dollars 20 years later and you sell it you know you're going to have to pay capital gains taxes sure. on that difference Seems but if you if you buy it for a dollar and 19 years later you die and your you know your relatives inherited on the 20th year or whatever it is they are going to kind of have the clock reset right they're inheriting that million dollars and they're not paying taxes, um, capital gains taxes on that difference. Um, so 
you know, obviously billionaires and and even just, you know, regular old rich people can afford to hire really good tax accountants and they find ways to shelter their income and kind of exploit loopholes. Uh, and really kind of a, the, the wealth tax is trying to get around that. And there are kind of other proposals that are similar where right now, you know, you only pay your capital gains taxes when you actually sell an asset. Um, and something that's kind of analogous to the wealth tax is the idea of what's called mark-to-market taxation, which kind of like your local property taxes, again, when um, you pay property taxes every year, you're obviously not selling your house every year. It's right. just kind of an estimate of what people think your house is worth based on the market overall. Um, and for most assets, we can do the same thing. And for you know stocks, obviously, we have you know really reliable price data, and we could say you're going to pay um, capital gains taxes every year as they accrue, not just one time later when you sell it. So I think, you know, there are kind of several options, kind of a full-blown wealth tax, modified capital gains taxes, and then obviously just, you know, increasing normal um, labor income rates where we separate out um, super, super high earners from just kind of, you know, the, the plain old, you know, successful doctor kind of rich people. Um, and I think all those need to be on the table. I think there's probably a better chance of increasing, you know, rates on labor income and um, of doing something about capital gains taxation than there probably is for a wealth tax right now. But I hope that I'm wrong and I hope that, you know, things like the Republican report start to build some momentum for a wealth tax. Well, and people do think that there's nothing we can do. The the powers that be have tried to convince us that there's nothing we can do, that we are powerless to make change. Wrong. It's amazing. You get out there in the streets, it does make a difference. You write to your member of Congress, it absolutely can make a difference. And as you point out, this, this I think, is, is interesting and, and may reflect uh, the country. Mark Cuban, who owns the Dallas Mavericks, says it's almost un-American to tax wealth as it is accrued. What, a, what about the rest of us? I mean, how many billionaires are there in America anyway? I mean, I really, I have no idea. I'm sure I don't know any uh, personally. But, uh, and we, the rest of us, uh, pay taxes on our homes and our homes don't write a check for us uh, here in my state, New Hampshire, we have reliance on property taxes because this, the taxes have been downshifted to the local uh, community. And of course the very wealthy people hire uh, Americans for prosperity. The cock, uh, coach Koch brothers uh, mispronounced it there. Sorry. Uh, Americans for prosperity arguing against an income tax. You can't have, tax fairness, you got to keep protecting the wealthy. It amazes me. What about this statement of, of Mark Cuban? How how much does that resonate, do you think, that it's almost un-American? Well, I, I think this is why um, Democrats kind of need to break down the barrier, at least rhetorically, um, between the different levels of taxation. Um, because it's strange, we actually don't have a government office that studies taxes at the state and local levels um, from kind of the 1960s to the early 1990s we we had something like that um, and that was kind of gotten rid of as a, a, a government institution 
And so now, you know, the only reliable data we have on state and local taxes comes from private organizations. Mm. And um, that makes it harder to kind of talk about taxes in the U.S. as a whole. And also, you know, if you're kind of a anti-tax Republican, you only really want to talk about federal taxes. And in particular, you only want to talk about federal income taxes because those are the only progressive taxes we have, you know, in our tax system. Um, you definitely don't want to talk about state and local taxes because those are regressive. And I think Democrats need to start bringing in, you know, all levels of taxation to the discussion because when you do that, um, you see, right, that we, we have something much closer to a flat tax that, you know, ideal that, that re Republicans say yeah. they want. We're actually pretty close to there already when you add up all the taxes. And um, those Berkeley economists that I mentioned earlier have kind of argued that when you're comparing the U.S. internationally, right, countries um, overseas, countries that are our peers, you know, Canada, European countries, Scandinavian countries, you get your health insurance through the government. So, right, you're, you're paying your premiums for your health insurance, essentially, through taxes. So they argue, right, if you add in private insurance premiums, which we should continue, consider a tax, right, that's what the Supreme Court said, actually, in, in upholding Obamacare, mm. that overall taxes in the U.S. Um, are regressive. And so, you know, I think that Democrats need to start talking more holistically about taxes. And in particular, when you start doing that, as you said, we could talk about property taxes. And most people, you know, understand property taxes, even if you're not a homeowner, um, studies show, right, right. You, are, you are paying your landlord's property taxes oh, yeah. in, in your rent. Um, and they're very regressive. And, um, you know, if you, the average home price in the US is a little less than $220,000. And the average yearly property taxes are about $2,500. In some states, that's as much as $5,000. So, you know, you might pay 10%, you know, down for your $220,000, you know, average price home. So you might have, you know, negative equity, you might have, you know, $200,000 loan, and you're still paying $2,500 in taxes on, you know, a $200,000 debt, essentially. Um, so, you know, if we were to think of, that as a wealth tax, that's that's just kind of a, a bonkers wealth tax, right? Um, mm -hmm. Most Americans have very little wealth. Um, lots of Americans are, you know, in net negative territory. Yes. And um, asking billionaires who are, you know, have billions and billions or even, you know, hundreds of millions in actual wealth when you net out, you know, their liabilities, um, it doesn't seem crazy to ask them yeah. to pay, you know, a few percentage of that every year when you when you think of it as an analogy to our property taxes. Um, True. But really, right, unless unless you start talking about all taxes together, it's impossible to kind of get people to understand. Yes. That, no, it, it's not it's not an American to pay a wealth tax. In fact, everyone's paying it every year all the time. We just don't think of it in that way. Yeah, we people in the lower income scales kind of subsidize the very rich. And I remember Bernie Sanders being asked, you know, about all his programs, how are you going to pay for it? Well, there is no problem. How are you going to pay for it? The money is there. No question about it. And we want these things to happen. We want infrastructure. We want to fight climate change. It's a complicated issue. What can people do to make the change? You know, interesting dynamic. Um, is that Republicans, people haven't noticed, have kind of purposely run up deficits when they've been in office. Yes. You know, really, Democrats need to 
fight fire with fire and kind of at some point, right, they need to get Republicans, you know, on their back foot. Well, that will have to be the last word. It's easy to give up, but we can make changes. We've been there before. Josh Mount, thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Thank you for having me. 